In today's episode of the Iman Wire podcast. True religion is always going to be difficult. Pseudo-religion is easy. One of the reasons that so many people are turning to, you know, morphed pseudo-spirituality of just kind of in a self-help type sense of just some type of meditation is because that it just allows you to be as you are. It doesn't really that cause you to work on yourself and to recognize that there is a responsibility upon your shoulders to better yourself. That true religion is going to be difficult, not outwardly in relation to our practice, but inwardly in terms of the struggle that goes along with us. You have to embrace it. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Manwar podcast. That's Salim here, your host, joined by Irfan. Irfan, salam Hey, salam Salim. It's great to be here again. So, as you know, uh, Sheikh Yahya is with us, and Sheikh Yahya, you know, over the the years that we've known each other, we've oftentimes talked about spirituality. Um, and one, of the, I think, one of the main issues of that is the education that's involved with spirituality. That oftentimes, while we're very good about as a community uh, teaching aspects of the faith, whether it be fiqh, which is Islamic jurisprudence, or aqidah, which is the belief system, sometimes when it comes to spirituality, which is a, it is a very intimate and personal experience, we oftentimes maybe miss the mark um, in it, in, in, especially in the in the American context of really telling people explicitly, kind of the way to which you can get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in the Quran, as you know, it says that whoever purifies himself, they will get progressively achieve that type of success, that type of, uh, um, you know, this this proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, in verse 87, um, in Surah 87 of, of, of verse 14. So I wanted to kind of talk about this kind of foundational premise of our faith and talk about Islamic spirituality in terms of the soul and how the soul is described in the Quran and how it can kind of like progress from one state to the next. So if you would like to uh, kind of uh, give us some of your insights on some of this, we like to go through maybe four, these four levels like that are in the Quran explicitly, but obviously we can uh, talk more broadly as well. So the, so for example, in Surah 12, uh, verse 53, it says, the soul that incites to, the, to evil. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, well, first of all, Bismillah wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wa Thank you very much for having me and may Allah bless you and al Medina and all of the great work that you do. It is a light for the community, not only in North America, but around the world. And may Allah ta'ala continue to bless you in that abundant ways. I do believe as well that this is a topic of the utmost concern. And unfortunately, there still is a lack of clarity regarding it. And it really, in my mind, is very simple. You have Iman, Islam, and Ihsan. So in my mind, when I speak about the science of Tasawwuf, when I speak about the science of purification of the heart and the whole idea of spiritual progression, initially, well, immediately what's triggered in my mind is that of Ihsan. It's really as simple as that. And when I was thinking about the interrelationship between Iman, Islam, and Ihsan, they all even though we might study them or speak about them individually, they're all interrelated. And so the founding, the building, foundational building block is of Iman, of course. But it's only to the degree of Iman that one will have Islam, that would practice. But then it's only to the degree of both Iman and Islam will you have that of Ihsan. But then it also works in the reverse order, is that you actually only that realize the higher degree of Iman through Islam. And you actually then only perfect both your Iman and your Islam through Ihsan. So in other words, is that Iman is the foundation, but Ihsan is what's called Mukammal. It actually perfects that which came before. So the reality is that it's working in tandem. One is that both, they're, they're simultaneously the foundation of the others, but it works in the reverse way as well, is that there's no way to attain the perfection of those levels other than realizing what comes after it. So when we understand it like that, it really, it gives, I think, gives us a lot of clarity. And um, as far as seeing that almost the study of this science as people that focus on it as another sect or something so much on the periphery, um, this is something that couldn't be further from the truth. And until that we correct that conception, we won't be able to do what it is that we need to do to really treat the questions that you have raised. And this is what I'm hoping for, uh, because when you travel widely throughout the Muslim world, it becomes very apparent. 
and not to have some type of utopian notion of the traditional Muslim world and the way that it always has been, and to some degrees the way that it still is. But I would say that there is that much more clarity in terms of what needs to be done to live a religious life. There's a lot more clarity. And part of that is because of the remnants of this beautiful tradition, is that people for the most part, and I would say to the degree that they've been affected by modernism is to the degree that they lose that clarity. But there still is a level of clarity. This is the way that you go about being religious, and this is what you have to avoid. And then it just gets back to the individual. So there's less confusion at the intellectual level. It's more at the level of, can I do this or not? Whereas I think when we look at our context, it's much more complicated. We obviously live in a world, especially in North America, that is not only affected by that modernism, it's the what's exporting it to the rest of the world. This monoculture right. that's everywhere. And um, it really requires is that we understand that what is happening around us so that we can focus on this dimension. And I just want to mention one thing as we kind of transition directly into the topic that you, that you mentioned. I really believe that the greatest crisis in the Muslim community is a spiritual crisis. And yes, there's an intellectual crisis. Yes, there are different other types of crises of a social nature, of a legal nature, and other so forth and so on. But I really believe the, the, the most significant and the most important for us to treat that is that level that affects all other levels is the spiritual level. And I think a lot of people that end up having some type of intellectual crisis where they don't understand a particular hadith or a particular position of the Sharia or whatever it might be, is that if you that dig a little bit deeper, something triggered that at the spiritual level. Right. And what I mean by that is if you treat it at that level, is that usually you will treat that particular thing. And I'm reminded of the time that I spent in Mauritania, which is traditional, traditional gets in the good sense of the world, word. And there's a certain point when you sit with rightly guided scholars who not only have knowledge, but they put it into practice and are living the deen, is that you submit. Something happens to your heart where you submit. And it's not that it's no longer a rational intellectual process, it still is, but something happens internally of a spiritual nature where you start to realize is that this dimension of the religion is from Allah. It's what Allah says it is, and you end up just submitting to it and then using the intellect to understand it as opposed to questioning it. Now, and that's, that's very Sahaba-like yeah. in a sense, right? The Sahabas experienced the Prophet in, in real life and therefore were transformed by just being with him as in that sense of Sufa, but also people who came after them, the, the Sahabas right. went to different parts of the world. And you know, there's a very famous story that people who were not Muslims would just view the Sahaba. He wasn't actively trying to convert them, but he was living amongst these people. And they said, we want to be like you. And I think there's something to that. When you see the deen in its complete three-dimensional form, you can't help but be somewhat attracted to that type of peace that engages one with the soul. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that I like to look at the historical development of the various sciences of Islam is that, going back to what you said, yes, it is Sahaba-like, but one of the th ways that I, I, I like to view that historical development of sciences is that it's there ultimately to preserve that possibility for people to still have the experience. Even if you look at certain positions of Islamic theology. And the way that it preserves that a monotheistic view of our Lord and then allows for the higher degrees of that realization in the religion to be based upon experience. So oftentimes when you when you study theology, you're you are you are that understanding that what Allah Ta'ala is not. And then even though that you are saying what Allah Ta'ala is and you believe in these certain attributes and so forth, is that you don't really come to know those attributes until you actually experience them. So it preserves this outward dimension so that human beings can maintain this experience. And I think that really experience is, 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 is really the, the, the key to the higher dimension of religion. And there's no that experience until we actually that delve into the realm of the spirit and to understand that how it is that we spiritually progress and so forth. And the only other thing I want to say by way of introduction is that um, we live in a world of progress. We live in a world, and this is a plastic word, it's an empty word, um, and it's a problematic word. Um, but from our perspective, 
is that there is no notion of progress without spiritual progress being a part of that equation. In other words, if you look at what's happening around us, the rate of change from the time of the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution and from the industrial revolution to the technological revolution. And now what took place previously, what took previously eight to 10,000 years for the same rate of change is now happening within months. If you plot that on a graph over the past 10,000 years of human history, it would be extremely flat for almost the entire span until the very end post-industrial revolution, especially post-technological revolution, where it just skyrockets and exponential increases. So we see incredible material progress, but it's not commensurate with spiritual progress. It's actually the opposite. Thus, any our, we would say is that any manifestation of material progress that is disconnected from spiritual progress will be a fitna. It will be a trial and a tribulation, and it will be a cause of intense balat and uh, for for creation, uh, because the two have to go hand in hand. Um, and ideally, is that that material progress is rooted in spiritual progress, so that it is that you know what the whole purpose of that is, and you can use it uh, accordingly. So there's a lot to uh, <coughs> kind of think about, and I think that's kind of a great introduction to spirituality. Something that really caught me was that you mentioned the idea of almost uh, the idea of experiencing the divine. And I think a lot of us want our our children, for example, when we talk about education, when we when we talk about the the future of this community, is that if people just have the the moment or the transcendent feeling of experiencing Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, that type of 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 like presence in their life, that's when we can have deeper discussions about the idea of the soul. It oftentimes becomes uh, d difficult to have those discussions when people are so uh, plagued, I would say, to a certain extent, with these types of uh, you know ruminations in their mind about identity politics, about this and about that, about these different stresses, and religion becomes almost like a yoke rather than you know, being so, actually freeing the mind. So I think it's really telling uh, in your introduction about the emphasis that we need to have as a community on spirituality. Uh, so kind of going back to this progression. Uh, if in, I could just interject, yeah, that, I'd just like to hear, Sheikha, you know, it, as you were talking about, you know, uh, our current stage of human development, um, you know, the idea, and you mentioned earlier, the idea of submission is something that is very um, challenging for a lot of people in our mm. current Very unpopular. Too. Right, and and I I noticed how you talked about how you or you implied it's a, it's a there's a rationality in that, and I think we typically understand submission as something the opposite of being rational. I was just wondering if you could maybe expand on a little bit about that for some of our listeners who have uh, difficulty grappling this idea of what this type of submission is and and uh, what is involved in that. So I will say first and foremost, the idea of submission is very unpopular in the modern world, and the reality is is that that many things that have to do with our faith are unpopular in the modern world. But we have to begin from the premise that we act, we are want to seek truth for what truth is, as opposed to try to understand truth through the extremely narrow modern lens. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, is that, um, that, as one of my teachers said, is that the very fact that so many people are troubled by Islam in the modern world. And I'm not talking about the things that even as Muslims agree with, a lot of the violence and, and problems that are happening for people who are not truly living this. I'm talking about just in general. It's because that, that it's actually a sign that we are holding on to the truth. Is that if we water down our religion to the extent that everyone in the world is comfortable with it, in modern secular societies that you know are welcoming us, that's actually not a very good sign. That's, a, that's right. potentially a sign from the standpoint of reality that we've watered down our faith to almost nothing is left. It's going to resist the modern world. It's going to resist any uh, that, that attempt to skew away from the truth. This is the essence of what our deen is, whether we're living in our context or whether in another historical context four or 500 years ago. This is the nature of what our faith is, is that, and this is the nature of prophetic truth, that it always will be opposed oftentimes by the dominant that, uh, that tendencies and currents that are in that particular time. So it's to be expected. Now, one of those many issues, so my point is, if that, that has to be our starting point, though. It can't be a deep-seated inferiority complex where we're like, why aren't we accepted in the modern world? 
how can we make our faith that a part of the modern world into that make them like us if we start from that as a, a starting point that we're going to get ourselves in deep trouble so we have to step back and understand that there is going to be tension at one level right we don't have unnecessary tension but it is going there is going to be tension when you talk about prophetic truth and one of those issues is is, is submission but if see if you take it back to an understanding of what i mentioned iman islam and ihsan Every single one of them is based upon submission. Right. You can't get out of that. That's, right. that's part of the whole process. Everything about the deen is submission at the level of belief. Right. Now, the fact that it makes sense with our mind and that you can understand it rationally and you have the development of ilm al-kalam, which there was a rational platform to articulate our beliefs to people that don't believe in the Qur'an and have rational proof for the existence of God and so forth and so on. The fact that you have that as a part of our broader that theological tradition that just indicates that how that it's not that anti-rational right, or antithetical to rationality. But the, the point is, is that the, it's all based upon submission. All of the, like everything that we do in terms of practice, from prayer to we'll do and everything, it's all based upon submission. Even though there are some um, that legal reasonings behind certain rulings and so forth. And likewise, when it comes to ihsan, even though we have that extremely developed ethical theories, it's all based upon submission. Every aspect of our deen is based upon submission. And even the scholars attempt to understand it and, and to develop these various sciences, they're using the intellect to understand what was revealed. So it's all based upon submission. But what we have to realize is there is no way to spiritually progress without submission. And this is one of the, the greatest lies of the modern world is that in somehow we're not in submission. Physically, every human being is in submission. We're in submission to the laws of the universe which we see as the sunan of Allah in his universe. But if someone looks at it just merely from a scientific perspective, we're in submission. Is that we can't defy gravity. Okay, and this is the problem with modern technology, that it's magical in the sense that we seem to be able to bend the rules through modern technology. Okay, that we can go up in a plane, that we can reach the moon, that we can have that... Uh, that satellites that orbit the earth and so forth and so on. We can try to find out what's on different planets. But the reality is we're still in submission. Who can go? I mean, and all of that's, you know, a, a tiny, that a fraction of what exists in our own galaxy, let alone beyond our galaxy and so forth and so on. So the reality is we are in submission. That just one of us just to hold your eye open and don't blink or to stop breathing. And then that the fact that, that by somehow breaking out of the mold, is that that is our happiness. That couldn't be further from the truth. Because the fundamental wisdom behind every single individual ruling of the Sharia, and this is we have to teach kids this from the earliest age, and adults if they haven't learned it, is to learn about submission. To learn is that you cannot do it yourself. It is about spiritual discipline. Yes, because you could say that, oh, beef is actually worse for you to eat. It's more unhealthy for you to eat than pork. So why is beef permissible to eat and pork is not? If you go down that route, you're going down a route that is going to cause a lot of confusion. It's very simple. Allah made this impermissible and there is a wisdom in it. There has to be certain things that we don't go there, but the divine wisdom in it is just to teach us restraint, to teach us that we are in need of discipline so that we have our own growth. So I think when it comes to submission, this is the way that we have to view it, is that it's actually in our submission is that we are truly free. Because for us, what is freedom? Freedom for us is defined as removing the shackles of the nafs, of the ego, the lower soul, however you choose to translate that, that from the heart so that the spirit can fill its function. That is true freedom. And until that we do that, we... that will always remain very, very limited here on, on, on earth. So you, you touched on a lot of things, and I also think you, in a lot of ways, explain what the aspect of the soul in, in the Quran that incites to evil. That a lot of times, if we understood the Sharia to be restraints upon our practices, our, our, our desires, then we would be different. There was a famous uh, 
you know, Catholic thinker, Thomas Merton, who has a great statement about this idea of submission. And maybe the problem is maybe when we talk about submissions, and you gave a great examples about how we are, if we don't even really, really realize it, we're under submission anyways. But there's this idea that he said that basically, if you think that you know God's will, then you are putting yourself in a sense, like shirk in a sense, that you are putting yourself at God's knowledge. But your job is to submit to God's will. And that means putting your mind and your spirit in a place to accept the reality as it comes your way. And I think one of the problems is that there's that passivity that people in modern, in particularly in our kind of culture of competitiveness and so forth, that we may think that passivity is just doing nothing and just like waiting for things to happen. But it's also your ability to read a situation, you know, so that you know, for example, maybe you've been trying for many years to get into this company or you've been doing this and has it been worked out but then other openings happen and yet rather than pursue those openings you're you keep trying a door that's not opening um in this regard though with the soul that incites to evil in the sense that it needs this constraints which the shooter provides there's also the soul that blames and maybe this is something that needs that's also not a popular notion in society as shame would be or haya or or modesty sometimes maybe an outcome of that type of soul so what it, could could you explain that in the Quran what when it when it mentions this type of soul in surah 45 verse 2 what exactly is that soul so yeah um well first of all let's, let's say this is that um uh there's a difference of opinion about the, the degrees of the soul. Some of them say there's three. Uh, some of them say there's up to seven. There's a difference of opinion about the degrees of the soul. There's no doubt that the lowest of the degree is the nafs al-amarabisu, the soul that incites to evil. And the idea behind that is, is that, yes, we are born in a state of fitrah, but the test, essential test that we've all been given is that we are made of both spirit and clay. So the nature of the spirit that it wants to return to its homeland in the divine presence, but the nature of the clay is that it moves down because it's it's a thicker, that more opaque substance. And the religious life becomes striving to that uh, purify oneself through a process of spiritual struggle and, and, and striving to that have not eliminate desire, and there's a difference, but make one's desire in accordance with what the Prophet ﷺ brought. And so at first, that the vast majority of people is that we'll have that a pull to the lower aspect of existence, and that relates to the desire. So the nafs, again, you can translate it as you want, the soul, the ego, the lower self, it's you. The nafs is you. Now, inside of the nafs, this is what is called the hawat, which is, this is where the passions arise. And that your desires, your passions, your caprice, they relate to anything of this world that gratifies yourself. So it could be food, it could be sleep, it could be the opposite gender, it could be that wanting a particular position and renown. Knowledge is actually a desire and a number of other things as well. That even anger, in, that unleashing your anger is a type of desire. And so you have all of these basic desires and the spiritual path really is about learning to control and regulate your desires, and then that recognize the wisdom in them and to, with through a process of making righteous intentions through everything that you do, is that actually then channeling your desire to be, to help you in the religion. You're, because what your nafs and the desires that arise in it, it's like your fuel. If you had no desire whatsoever to learn, earn a living, to earn money, to get married or to have friendships, how would you do it? It's it's your desires are your fuel for your that metaphorical vehicle, and so that it's not something that you can just at once completely overcome and set aside. No, you have to do what's called siyaset and nafus, politics of the soul. You have to learn to give in a little bit here, move a little bit forward. It's your riding beast that you have a long travel ahead. You can't just kill it and go drive it in that drive it for five days straight. Little by little, you have to work on it, cut back a little bit here, direct it here, let it rest, take it easy, little by little, incrementally. And so that the idea of the nafs and Basu is learning to regulate these desires. Now, the vast majority of people are probably not even aware is that their nafs is reciting, is inciting to evil. And that many Muslims actually fall in this category as well. As you start to embrace religion, the deen, 
you start to realize, oh, this is what I have to do now. I have to wean myself, if you will. I have to tame this recalcitrant horse that exists within me and start to progress. So once you start that process, and that's a whole other topic that they mention in the books of how to trigger that process in yourself, is that now is where you start moving to the second degree, which is the nafsa lawama, the reproachful, the upbraiding soul, where now you start to realize is that you are legally responsible, is that you can't just, like an animal, that have uncontrollable desire. You have to start regulating your desire, that there's limits, and that you have to observe those limits, and you have to submit to them. And you start going through this process of working on yourself. And I'll say in this regard too, again, it gets back to having the correct conception. True religion is always going to be difficult. Pseudo-religion is easy. One of the reasons that so many people are turning to, you know, morphed pseudo-spirituality of just kind of in a self-help type sense of just some type of meditation is because that it just allows you to be as you are. It doesn't really that cause you to work on yourself and to recognize that there is a responsibility upon your shoulders to better yourself. That true religion is going to be difficult, not outwardly in relation to our practice, but inwardly in terms of the struggle that goes along with it. So you have to embrace it. And this is the essence of what this second stage is, is embracing that struggle and working on yourself, controlling your desires, teaching yourself to have mercy, teaching yourself to have good character, being patient with the people that are around you, especially when it comes to your involuntary relationships and so forth and so on. And that's the essence of the, of, of the religious life is working on yourself in that second stage. And then when you do that, it will eventually take you to the stage after that. Mashallah. And I think that's a really important point to focus on this idea that people may not be fully cognizant of who they are or where their soul is. And so it goes back to another statement of one of the Salaf, uh, which is, you know, that man arafa nafsuhu. If you know your soul, if you know yourself, then you know your Lord. And so that cognitive state of beginning to understand your Lord, it seems like it starts at this part where you start to understand it and then blame some of your, ba your bad characteristics and so forth. Um, then as we move to that, there's this idea of ins inspiration that comes through. And I wanted to kind of link this idea of the inspired soul to something in the Quran where it says that if you had God consciousness, if you have God consciousness, then Allah will teach you. Could you maybe ex expand on that and how people should be properly reading once they're on this path of guidance, how they should be receiving that, that guidance? And oftentimes, you know, there's this idea that obviously there's no doubt you need a, a teacher. And there's no doubt that you can learn many things from the, our scholarship and books. But at the end of the day, life is probably the best teacher for most people. But how do they properly understand what they're receiving and what's going on in their lives could be an issue because they may be in misinterpreting things. And because they haven't dealt with their soul in this fashion, these things, again, like, as you mentioned, it's always correlating back to the three dimensions of Islam, Iman, and Ihsan, that you have to continuously work on all of these phases and they're interrelated. So there's a lot that you just um, <laughs> that uh, just instigated there in a positive way. Um, and maybe we can come back to the idea of what you mentioned, the idea of knowing yourself as a means of knowing your, our, our Lord, um, because that's an immense topic in and of itself uh, that has immense implications for the world in which we live. And, um, you know, that's an enormous topic. So maybe we can come back to that. Inshallah, we'll do that. But, um, you know, I, I think that the, the, this is one of the, the beauties of this whole process, which I did describe as difficult, because it is difficult. Working on yourself is difficult. And um, I was recently introduced to a book called Mindset. I think the author's name is Carol Dweck. And she says that human beings think in one of two ways. This is basically their approach to that life and life circumstances. Either they approach it with a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And it's really interesting to apply her theory to, and she's done extensive research on, on people to come to this, to not only personal development, but career development, their relationships, and then eventually when they have children and so forth. And this idea of the growth mindset is really important and actually very Islamic. And even the word that she used, I think, is a good word, this idea of growth. And the idea of the growth mindset is, is that you actually believe that you can change. And you approach life and especially life's failures, from a, the standpoint of learning something new that you needed to learn. 
as opposed to the fixed mindset, they see these various tests in life where it actually is a test of like school or something like that, or that something that they go through, like not getting a particular job is they see that individual incident as assessing where they are in a particular moment. And if they, that are not successful is that it actually makes them feel bad about themselves. And when they are successful, they actually feel a deep sense of gratification and they're blinded to the whole purpose of what actually happened and using it as a means of growth. And so it will stunt your growth. It's not that they can't have some relative degree of being successful, but the point is the idea of the growth mindset is, is that it's a very different approach to life. And every failure, which is outwardly a failure, you can find the opportunity in the challenge to turn it into a time of growth, turn it into a way to grow, to learn, turn it into something that you didn't that previously know. And as we all know, is that you might have failed in three or four of your jobs, but you learned skills then where you got the career that you deserved you were looking for. And so in reality, that those failures were something that were positive. I think this is the way that we really have to approach it. And when you do that, what will happen is, is that there will be divine facilitation. I think this is the whole key to understanding what I've, has, we've described as a difficult process. All we really have to do is put the energy in. The rest will come from Allah. Even getting a teacher comes from Allah. Getting the knowledge that you need, whether it's from books or whether it's from life, will come from Allah. Ultimately, this is from Allah. And while I will be the first person to emphasize the importance of teachers, is that sometimes I don't want to debilitate the community by thinking if they haven't found their teacher in the moment that they can just give up. Sometimes people hear that and they say, well, I don't have a teacher, so it means that I can't spiritually progress. No. Is that, yes, while we search for teachers and try to find people that are going to help us, this is about you and Allah. Jalla Jalla. And if you approach it as such and you, for instance, read the verse, We have all heard that verse before. Those who strive that for our sake, we will surely guide them to our ways. What do you have to do? You just have to strive. You have to take a step. And what that means is a metaphorical step in the heart, the first movement of the heart of wanting to better yourself. And if, even if you don't know how to do that, you make the intention to do that. And then I believe that anyone who makes the intention to an intention to do that or makes an intention to someday make an intention to make an intention to do that ad infinitum will be guided at some level and then everything will come after that. But you have to take that first step in your own heart to want to do something even if you don't know what it is. And when you do that, Allah will guide you to the next step and then he'll guide you to the next step and then he'll guide you to the next step. And there, here is the idea of inspiration. And that the more work that you put in, the more things will work out for you. But again, it gets back to having the correct conception. We have to teach people this meaning and then also teach ourselves and others to be aware of all of the different ways that we learn. Is that formal learning is important, but that's only one dimension. You learn from life if you are indeed looking to learn that some of the greatest lessons you'll ever learn. Sometimes your worst failures were absolutely necessary for you to achieve something that otherwise you simply couldn't achieve. A difficult relationship, either with a child or with a spouse or something like that, was something that you absolutely needed, and it was a bitter medicine, but it was medicine in ways that you might not ever even know until you return to Allah Ta'ala. So the beauty here is, is that all we have to do is just keep putting in the energy. And then Allah Ta'ala will guide us every step along the way, and that if we strive enough, we believe in something called ilham. We believe in inspiration. And inspiration comes through angels because we believe in an angelic presence. And the amazing thing is in this regard, because that gets back to this idea that we were talking about before is about, of experience. It's amazing how, it's amazing how, at, as scientific as some people are, at one level, they still believe in these things. I had a friend who just told me yesterday, his um, father was on his deathbed, and um, he had an abdominal aneurysm. And they were just waiting for him to go. And he lived much longer than they thought. So the, the main doctor actually came to him and said, is there someone that needs to come visit him? Is there someone who needs to come apologize for something? Is there someone who needs to say something to him? 
because he's holding on and it seems like he's holding on and doesn't want to go. Now, what's the scientific proof of that? Like, how are you going to somehow come to that conclusion by way of a test that that's actually happening? Like, what what is really scientific about that? And, you know, this person had this amazing experience that outwardly there was no possible way for him to have that experience where he realized there was something that he needed to do. And when it dawned on him, he immediately went to the hospital and said what it is that he had to say. And his father passed away shortly after that. And it's like, where did that come from? And why do we, you know, believe in these things at certain times, that there's something beyond the material? And there's things that are beyond the material that are still not in the realm of what would be called inspiration or cash for unveiling or things like that. That things that abilities that we have that are more not necessarily physical, but they they relate to that uh, they're not cash for they're not an unveiling they're not inspiration. But then there's things that are definitely inspiration, and um, the idea is is that we put in that struggle, and all of these things come, and um, you know this is why I think it gets back to the importance of experience. So in life experiences, I just want to. Uh touch on another point. Sometimes we find people who are, I guess the word is haughty. I don't know if they still use that. It seems like a very 18th century type of word, but you know, there's a sense of overestimation of who you are. But then there's also a, a real sense of underestimation of who you are. And oftentimes those people who project this sense of uh, confidence are really suffering from a lack of confidence. And so there's this idea of uh, where am I in this world? Where am I in the cosmos? Where am I to Allah? And I remember a, a teacher told me, if you put Allah first in your life, then he's also looking at you that way. You're not just one out of a billion uh, so people in the world. You're, you are intimately connected in that sense. How would you then explain to someone who may come to you for guidance or may ask a question about finding their, 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 their place? We talked about uh, people pursuing things and, and in terms of careers and this and that. But in terms of like this cosmic idea that is oftentimes floated around in pseudo-spirituality, how do we... The law of attraction. Exactly. Like how do we try to like explain to people and give people a due sense of who they are without falling into either overestimation right. or underestimation? Right. Um, mashallah. Again, these are enormous topics. Um, just a few talking points. The way that I think we should understand the human being and all everything in creation has a passive and active nature. Everything in creation has a passive and active nature. At the highest level, so in relation to the pen and the tablet, the pen is active in relation to the tablet, and it is, and what I mean is not the actual pen, the, the pen of Qudra, and then the tablet is passive in relation to the pen, but that tablet is simultaneously active in relation to the manifestation of the divine decree in creation. And then that every relation, every human being has a passive and active nature. That ultimately everything is passive in relation to Allah, but then active in relation to creation. So that same child which was once passive, and this archetypally speaking, of course, in relation to his parents, will one day be a father or a mother and be active in relation to their children. That a teacher was once a student, and there was a passive active nature, and then he's active in relation to the passive student, and so forth and so on. The earth is that passive in relation to the falling of the rain, and then active in relation to the vegetation that it gives. So when we understand it as such, this is the secret of, I think, answering this question, is that the human being has a passive and active nature. And this is one of the greatest of what we would call a worldly end. We have ultimate ends, worldly ends, and then means. This is a worldly end, and it's twofold. Tahqiqul ubudiya, which is where you establish, you actualize your servitude before Allah Jalla Jalalu. And then iqamat al-khilafa, is that you become the vicegerent of Allah Ta'ala on earth in all of its meanings. And that relates to... This the, representation of God, essentially. Just making sh through the sacred law and everything that we know from our deen being means for its establishment in the earth mm -hmm. and thus being a means for the fulfillment of the divine will of where human beings are supposed to live. And that includes everything that relates to the earth and caretaking for the earth and animals and everything else and all of our relationships and so forth and even our own spiritual development. All of that is included in this process. And so it's passive and active. And so it's 
here it's a type of that paradox in a sense is that we are simultaneously that the least significant thing in creation but we're the most significant thing in creation and it's not really a paradox because it depends on how you define it that we are insignificant insofar as if you go back from any picture of planet earth where are we you're in a plane can you see human beings walking what are we we're nothing in reality is it we're a speck we're nothing but we are the most significant why because we have the ability to know allah jalla jalalu our heart can attain ma'rifah and from here this is one of the biggest differences that between traditional christianity and between islam which is one of the things that led to that one of the many factors that led to the trajectory of western intellectual history which is that christians believed in what was called the great chain of being they believed that human beings were not only the spiritual center of the universe but the actual center of the universe in a physical sense whereas we never believe that you're not required to believe that we're not required to believe that the earth is this static that perfect sphere that is at the center of the universe we were never required to believe that we believe is that human beings are the spiritual center of the universe and there's a huge difference because what led to the breakdown one of the factors led to the breakdown of a traditional understanding of christianity was this as they started to realize wait a second the earth is actually orbiting the sun wait a second the planets that are orbiting the earth are actually their elliptical orbits they're not perfect spheres and it started to break down little by little in a long complicated process over time yeah so the whereas whole cosmology us, just breaks down yeah whereas for us we're the spiritual center right. of the universe so we're most significant but why are we significant nothing related to our own selves is because that we can know allah and this is why i look at the terminology that the scholars always used when they talk about these spiritual experiences ilham inspiration that's something that's coming to you a wadid which is kind of like another form of inspiration what it yet is to come it's not anything you're doing and arif billah right it's there's no emphasis on the self someone who knows through allah and arif billah why did they refer to it as such it d there's a d emphasis of the self and so our significance is not related to anything intrinsically in us it's related to that ability that we have to know allah jalla jalalu so we are simultaneously that completely insignificant yet the most significant depending on how you look at it and then when you translate that into what you had mentioned this idea of that sometimes there's an overestimation and underestimation of the self you're right and when you understand this balance is that we are all ultimately submissive before allah our goal matlab al-arifin tahqiq al-ubudiyah the whole goal of the greatest of the knowers of allah is to actualize their servitude and there's deep 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 meaning in that that is often times misunderstood but then when it comes to creation this is getting back to what we talked about earlier no to the degree that we realize that dimension of ourselves is to the degree that we will actively be that we will be able to be active in relation to creation and one of the secrets of that is of the lunar calendar is that the night becomes before the day right the night comes before the day and what we do at night is the greatest indication of what we're going to do by day and then we have our prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and we know that he used to wake up around 11:30 to 12:30 every single night pray to the last six of the night roughly and then sleep and then wake up the battle of badr he spent the entire night that praying or the vast majority of the night and then the next day is that there was the actual battle that's what it's all about and now i mentioned specific in relation to the night but this is how the sahaba were described as that they were like monks at night and knights or lions depending upon the narration during the day so to the degree that we actualize that our submission is to the degree that we will truly be active now you might say oh there's all these other people active act, being very active in creation but they 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 don't have that degree of submission this is the problem this is why they're wreaking havoc and the more active that we become now with modern applied technology the more havoc that people are going to wreak because they don't have that degree of submission and that is the secret of anything that we do actively in creation being of benefit we don't want people just to do things when we when people do things we want those things to be of benefit so they go hand in hand into the degree that we actualize our servitude to allah is that we actualize that complete submission to allah 
is to the degree they will actually be active in relation to creation. And so when we think of it as such, is that you can get out of that dichotomy. And because at the level of your servitude to Allah, you see yourself as nothing. And then to the degree that you're detached from even that what you yourself are doing, and this is taught in these, with these subjects, is that you don't see yourself as the one who's doing it. Once you start to go there, and then to the degree that you don't see yourself as the one who's doing it, you did not throw when you threw, but Allah threw. So our Prophet could just throw dust like that. And all of a sudden, which there's no possible way that that's going to actually reach the eyes of everyone in the opposing army. But Allah made it happen. Sayyidina Ibrahim, right? It's upon you to call the Adhan. And it's upon me, right, to make sure that people hear that call. And so forth and so on. These are the meanings that we can still have access to in our own lives if we focus on that dimension of things. So then a final question uh, that I have is basically the next step is tranquility. The Nasr Mutama'inna, which is mentioned in uh, Surah 89, verse 27. But I think a lot of people are falling for a false sense of what tranquility is. And because it's so elusive in people's lives and people spend how many millions of dollars to you know, with different products and different uh, like routines and vacations or whatever it can be to get this sense of tranquility. It's more of a marketing tool than a reality that I think that people have actually experienced. What would you define tranquility as? And how, obviously, the hard work that's needed that you discuss. But at the end of the day, as a kind of an inspiration for people who are listening to have a goal towards what is what is the sense of tranquility that people should actually be expecting? The reality of tranquility is that where that you have put so much spiritual struggle in that no longer are you affected by the thoughts or you could call them suggestions of the nafs and shaitan is that there's a stillness at the heart level there's no longer any more dissonance and your nafs is not fighting you anymore and shaitan you've learned how to that block all of his entryways into the heart and so you have stillness of heart and when you have stillness of heart you have purity of heart and when you have stillness of heart and purity of heart is that whatever it is that you go through in life if you reach the higher degrees of this is that it will a the most difficult of circumstances right will be turned into that the very easiest of things and that this is why that Sayyidina Ibrahim this is what he asked for what did he want I wanted this tranquility of my heart. And he is the one when he was thrown in the fire. That, O fire, be that peaceful, uh, cool, and peaceful upon Abraham. And so the highest degree of certainty is Tumanina. So all of these things are interrelated. So there's a station, the Nafs al and one of the characteristics of the highest manifestation of that station is that you reach the highest degree of certainty, which is you are completely tranquil, meaning no matter what it is that you face from the divine decree, you have absolute firmness of heart. And you're no longer struggling with yourself to respond to that. You respond to, in a way, with complete servitude to Allah, whatever comes your way, whether it's beautiful or whether it's bitter whether it's easy or whether it's difficult, and you that do what it is that you're supposed to do in each circumstance. And this is beyond just mere patience. This is acceptance. And this is beyond mere just acceptance. This is seeing everything that you go through actually as a great gift, even if it's extremely difficult to go through. And then also that it's not just a mere gratitude if that good comes your way. Beyond gratitude is that you actually start to that give to other people that if indeed that you have something in excess of what it is that you absolutely need. And when you reach that, you've reached the highest degree that human beings can possibly ever reach. But the whole point is not just to respond to that what happens, that outwardly too, it's to know Allah in everything that it is that you experience. So you're not just focusing it's not, it's not on yourself. In itself trying to, yeah. It's just what happens. And then you come to know Allah, right? And this is comes directly from a hadith. Right? No come to know Allah in times of prosperity. And he will know you when you go through a difficulty. In other words, is that knowing Allah in all of your different states, where you start to witness is that 
if some good comes to you, this is a manifestation of one of his beautiful names. If something difficult comes to you, this is a manifestation of one of his that rigor, names of rigor, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so you come to know Allah. And I will end, because I know it's probably time. Um, one of the, the, the greatest lessons that I ever learned I was with my uh, one of my teachers, and we were on our way to a particular destination, and the visa that he had had expired. The people didn't check his passport. So we had gone, It was we had a, uh, a, a connecting flight, and we were in this airport, and we were going to a Western country. They checked the passport, and the visa had expired. So I was a bit upset that the people around him didn't look at, to check to see if the visa was still, that uh, had, you know, they, they could, you know, it hadn't expired yet. So we were sitting over there waiting uh, to see what was going to happen. And I was, you know, a bit bothered. And my teacher was just completely calm. And he started reciting poetry. And he started reciting beautiful, like, love poetry. And I could see that he was in this really calm, like, state. And he looks over at me and he says, Yahya. He says, the people who know Allah are with Allah that despite whatever happens. And they know him just as much that they know him in times where he gives and they know him in times where he prevents. And that they actually see that in prevention, the essence of a gift. Right. And he says, if this is all that you learned, he said, that's sufficient. And think about the power of that meaning. Think mm. about if you could take that one principle and implement in that life. Is that all the times you've experienced prevention, you don't have the relationship you want. You don't have the job that you want. You don't have all of these things that you don't want, but you're trained yourself or you struggle so that you are trained to see gifts in prevention. Think about that. How you, that type of, what type of person that would be. And how they would be able to get through life with all of these other experiences with so many people that are causing them problems and stressing them out and anxiety that's giving them mental health problems and physical health, physical health problems and all these types of things. That one thing could completely change everything. And so in the end that, you know, I, I just, subhanAllah, you know, Allah blessed me with this religion over about 22 years ago. And um, the more and more that you you learn, the more and more beautiful it becomes. Every day becomes more and more beautiful. The, and you just realize, no matter what you know, just the horizon, just when you think that, oh, like what else could actually be known? Just incredible new horizons that are seen. And then it just keeps getting that broader and broader and vaster and vaster and more and more beautiful. And, um, you know, I just think that, um, you know, if once we unlock this for the community where they can see it as such, is that then life will become a process to attain, you know, what exists in these expanding horizons. So, We really were honored to have you on the podcast and um, we hope to have you on again. I think uh, if uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala facilitates, uh, we'd love to have you on if uh, if you're willing. And I'm sure our listeners would love, would be eager to hear your thoughts on other subjects as well. Um, I want to thank you, Arfan, for joining us again. No, thank um, you, Salim. This is awesome. And, uh, of course, thank you to all the listeners out there. Um, if you're listening to us on iTunes, and remember to um, uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, you can go to imamware.com for the latest podcast episodes and articles. Uh, please share the podcast with friends and family, anyone you think may benefit. All that really helps uh, get the podcast out to a broader audience. And until then, we hope to see you in the next program. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be unto you.